Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. Perception versus the truth. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's news talk, TNT Radio. All right, I'm Matt Eret. This is Connecting the Dots, and we're back for the third hour. Uh, I am really happy to be joined by Alex Dimitrios, who is a journalist. He's done a lot of work as an editor of the Space Commune, and uh, it's a wonderful website that uh, I've really recently discovered. He works very closely with his colleague, Fox Green, who has been on our show a few weeks back. And Alex, uh, I am, I've been very impressed with your analysis, your mode of communication, and your insight into the importance of understanding energy geopolitics and the, and the battle over energy. That's something that a lot of people miss out on. They don't appreciate. Even people are very astute on the complexities and sophistication of, of grand history and grand strategy and all these things. They often are very blind on the matter and importance of energy and specifically nuclear energy um, yeah. as something which has been fought over. Um how did you, and I mean, I'm, I'm referencing here a, an essay that I, I want to talk to you a little bit about today. Geopolitics proving that renewables are for show, energy is for dough. It's on spacecommune.com. Um, how did you discover the importance of this, uh, of this, of energy policy and nuclear per se? Is that something you always understood or is that something you kind of woke up to later on in the game like I did? No, I only figured it out, uh, you know, my partner Fox Green and I. Uh, we live in the Hudson Valley in New York State. Uh, New York State is known as the Empire State, and we live near the we live in the birthplace of democracy in the United States in Kingston, New York, you know, New York State's first capital. And uh, the uh, the thing is, we we lived near this amazing nuclear power plant called Indian Point, and it provided twenty five percent of New York City's electricity nonstop for forty years. Uh, ran it was one of the safest nuclear power plants in the world and uh just through uh seeing our energy bills go up after environmentalists shut down the plant prematurely uh during the pandemic um noticing that and asking questions okay well why you know we were told that nuclear is uh so dangerous and so expensive why are our energy bills going up you know we live in this the state where you know we're a leader on the climate we've deindustrialized the state so much there's no industry anymore sucking up power why are energy bills still going up and that led us down this uh this rabbit hole that uh, actually uh revealed a lot of truths about um not just how our energy bill works how our energy grid works but also about geopolitics and uh some of the games that um the malthusian oligarchs have been playing for decades now uh with other countries Mm. For people who say that nuclear power can uh, can be replaced by wind and solar, uh, which has been a popular trope of the past few decades, I guess it probably took off in the 70s. I'm not too sure when it started. Um, can you just clarify quickly, uh, why are they wrong? Why can these things never measure up to the quality of energy that nuclear brings to the table? There's a lot of reasons. Uh, first of all, nuclear energy requires a very small amount of earth moved and materials to power a city for an entire year. So the nuclear energy, I think it's something like uh, 27 tons, something like that, um, of nuclear fuel can run a power plant for an entire year. So you can do that. You can make, you can do that shipment 
you know, very efficiently, maybe with a few trucks going back and forth. Uh, and then you can store the fuel on site and it runs a city for an entire year. And that's why uh, nuclear power is becoming a building block to national sovereignty because you lock in your energy security with nuclear power. And that's why we're in the middle of this giant nuclear power and uranium boom, uh, both geopolitically and in the markets. Uh, another reason why nuclear power runs 24 seven. So there's no dips, um, you know, with wind and solar, it's very tied into the Gaia hypothesis where they want to return us to um, praying to the gods for the ideal conditions. Um, and that's why with a lot of devices that are, you know, manufactured by ESG companies like Microsoft you, and Apple, you now see these things built in where they're like, oh, we're only going to charge your phone while the sun is shining or while the wind is blowing, you know, because we have, there's more renewable energy on the grid. And that's how we're going to mm. help save the planet. So th this is all tied into um, these, they're called intermittent sources of energy where um you it's not 24 7 you can't just flip the switch like we're used to have the power come on uh the people that are trying to destroy our energy grid and especially in the west they want to move us towards praying to the gods uh, for the ideal conditions to have just enough power in the grid to charge your stuff and then you're in darkness you know maybe you have a little battery um a little light that you can turn on at night but then you don't have energy until the conditions are good again uh, and then one other reason I, I never thought of it that way, by the way, I just I, I'm, I'm going to let you continue. But just to, to to toss in a little two cents, I just appreciate that because I never really considered the Gaia hypothesis being so locked into or the Gaia theory that um, some would wish that we adopt this new religion of worshiping the unknowable forces of nature and almost like doing rain dances again or sun dances mm -hmm. in some cases so that the sun might shine in order for the gods to favor um our solar panels um but that's sort of the orientation that it would go in eh? at the end of the day it, it is more locked in or hope that the wind blows and do some sort of a ritual to satisfy the wind gods that maybe they'll blow again and make our turbines turn um, yeah. it is uncomfortably close to that way of thinking hmm. yeah and if you look at how uh, especially in the west how uh, renewables have been adopted they are they are agents of chaos Renewable energy is an agent of chaos where uh, it's intermittent and what the government, the, the ideological um, people that are pushing it the most with government incentives and saying, oh, it's so cheap, let's build out a lot of solar and wind and just throw it onto the grid and see what happens. It adds such a level of complexity uh, and it forces more reliable sources of energy to scale up and down depending on what the weather conditions are. And that makes it harder for those reliable sources of energy to remain in business. So, um, for example, a, a, a natural gas plant, it now has to scale up and down, depending on how intensely the sun is shining, depending on how many solar panels are working at that moment, they have to scale it up and down. That changes the margins of the, new, of the natural gas plant um, so that it's harder for them to stay in business long enough to be on you know, we, we have weather we're here in uh, the Northeast and where you are in Canada, you know, we have some cold weather coming and uh, the utilities are, are buckling up and bracing for it because the rest of the year with renewable energy, uh, their business model has been challenged so, so deeply by these renewables. Um, so then at this moment, they're like, okay, how much, how much gas do we have on hand? Uh, you know, what, uh, what money do we have left to buy energy where, you know, wherever we can get it? 
um it just it's an agent of chaos and um it's it kind of ties into a larger theme uh env environmentalism of monkey wrenching of anarchism uh where they want to destroy the reliable sources of civil of energy that power our civilization because at the end of the day they hate civilization um so it, go it goes pretty deep and then so nuclear energy ties back into it because it's known as a base load source of energy uh it's the thing that they they hate most is that it's the the most reliable thing that we can possibly have uh powering our energy grid no yeah that's that's straightforward and concise and you just came out and said it because at the end of the, at the end of the day we can get forever locked into these discussions about the details of the the green agenda and all of the different elements of of uh of uh windmills and solar panels and why they're ineffective but at the end of the day what it all comes down to is an intention a simple but ugly intention that a lot of people are almost trained to not put into words or acknowledge which is they hate humanity and want to reduce human human beings uh down to something that's more controllable and industrial civilization has kind of gotten in the way of that intention of restoring feudalism because I guess industries and and advanced energy sources give us an abundance. We it, it yeah. creates it makes it difficult to maintain the logical argument that there's only so much space to go around, guys. We have to adapt to scarcity. But what if there's yeah. no scarcity to adapt to? What if you create abundance? Yeah. Well, shoot. <laughs> exactly. Maybe and, on that note, you you read a lot about the multi. Yeah. Go. Oh, I was just gonna say. So that's why. So I was gonna say uh, you, you you read a lot about the the Malthusian uh, agenda on this note. Sorry, uh, there's a bit of a lag. Yeah. Um, uh, could you maybe elaborate for those who may not know or haven't thought too much about like what is this Malthusian agenda? Uh, what is Malthus? What what what? Why is this an important concept for people to get in in into their mind? And and anything else you want to say? Yeah. Well, touching on what I just what, what I brought up. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, what people need to know if they want to look into it more. Mal you know, Malthus was a guy uh in the, the i think early 1800s uh right before there was this giant explosion uh in machining in uh, agriculture and technology um and a, a seismic shift in how uh hum humans can manipulate the environment to support hu uh, more human beings more potential geniuses more people to solve all, all of our problems uh, and create new ones, but then solve those too. You know, that's that's the 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 uh, human you know human paradox that keeps us going. Uh, he thought that okay, we're going to run out of resources to support the population, and therefore we need to start doing things uh, like crowding people into cities, uh, getting people sick um, to curb the population. And uh, so the thing is, he was utterly proven wrong. You know. Uh, Henry Carey did a lot uh, to prove him wrong. Um, Marx did some did some things that proved him wrong. History proved him wrong. But there are still uh, people who are just saying that, oh, well, Malthus, you know, he was wrong then just because uh, he wasn't proven right yet. And this next thing, this next decade, this is where it's going to happen. Uh, so, you know, and this is this has been happening. You know, there's always a new, uh, you know, hot... Uh, uh, overpopulation expert who's saying, oh, this is the time when uh, the collapse is coming and they're rooting for it. And with things like renewable energy, uh, they're trying to bring about the collapse. Uh, so in, in examples like uh, how uh, the G7 are pushing a renewable only agenda on Africa, 
um, is a clear example of Malthusianism uh, in our modern age, where they're saying, oh, this is the empathetic choice. We don't want them to get addicted to fossil fuels like we did. We want them to have this clean energy. You know, Africa, it seems sunny. So uh, maybe, you know, it's going to be a reliable source of energy. But what they're really doing is uh, putting, uh, you know, child brakes on or, uh, you know, the bumpers uh, on the, the bowling alley lane uh, to prevent them from fully uh, developing and accelerating the, the rate of development that they can achieve uh, with renewables. And that's the clear divide between uh, G7 development, where they're spending hundreds of billions of dollars. One of the battlegrounds is South Africa, where there's two competing agendas. There's uh, the BRICS agenda, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, paired with uh, the agenda of uh, Russia's uh, uh, Rosatom, which is their nationalized nuclear energy company, which is doing amazing things in Africa. Those, uh, you know, the BRICS alignment, they're pushing fossil fuels, they're pushing reliable sources of energy that can build civilization. And the G7 is pushing unreliable sources of energy. And Africa overwhelmingly is picking the reliable sources of energy. And uh, that's where, in some of the articles uh, that I shared for this interview, um, that's where our analysis is going, is that now the G7 is seeing this and they're saying, oh, you know what? multipolarity is actually happening and we're losing our grip on the world. We cannot prevent the world from developing the way we were. So now we have to, that's why all of a sudden all the uh, objections of nuclear energy are evaporating because the G7 countries are seeing, wait a second, Russia and China are actually successful at uh, blowing up these narratives. Even though China has so much to gain from pushing renewables, they make, I think 95% of the renewable supply chain is in China. They have abundant supplies of lithium that they're not afraid to mine. They have so much to gain from pushing renewables, but they're still not put in the developing world. They're they're not forcing countries to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's going to set the stage for what we're going to talk uh, talk about after the the coming break, which is the issue of of China and the multipolar alliance more generally. That has is being animated by a very different paradigm than what we've been controlled by since, especially the death of John F. Kennedy. And as you just pointed out in your article, you you make the, the clear point that looking at, I think it was 2022, of the 59 or no, 57 nuclear reactors built up around the world, 49 of them were built up by companies that are Russian or Chinese. That's yeah. incredible. And yeah. And a little Indian too, right? I mean, yeah. but the BRICS nations highly disproportionately, BRICS nations carrying the weight of the nuclear legacy. The West has been shutting it all down, the pro-NATO uh, collective uh, West has been shut. Japan, you you point out, lost. They shut down 38 of their reactors uh, over the last, uh, well, I think it was since Fukushima, uh, uh, yeah, since the tsunami. Um, France shut down two, USA shut down 12. Um, so we're just, we're going backwards. But as you pointed out, there's this interesting, by virtue of competency being demonstrated um, in Eurasia, you actually are now creating a, situ a situation that's being forced onto us, which is which is demanding that certain anti-nuclear narratives be uh, be erased in order to Attention. unshackle. Yeah, it's fascinating what's going on, right? It, despite the the interest or the paradigm of the oligarchy that would prefer it not happen, just by virtue of of competency, it is happening. So very fascinating. We're gonna we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come back. TNT Radio Live. 
TNT Radio's James Freeman. We have new revised figures from the Office for National Statistics showing that legal, that's not illegal, that's legal, net migration to the UK has witnessed one of the largest increases on record. Three quarters of a million additional people are now living in the UK in the space of just one year. A huge number that comes just three years after we left the European Union. Now, I didn't vote for Brexit because of immigration. I voted because of democracy, but millions did vote because they think too many people are coming into the country, which makes what the government has allowed to happen an absolute two fingers up to the people and democracy. Another example, if we needed another, of how the government does the exact opposite to what the people want and vote for. The Freeman Report and James Freeman on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I said, could she die? And the doctor said she could. It was so scary. When I started clawing at my neck and trying to breathe and I thought, you know, what are we going to do if I die here? (laughs) How's everyone going to go on? When someone's gravely sick or injured in the bush, they rely on the Royal Flying Doctor service. But now the Flying Doctor needs your help to fund vital medical equipment and supplies. Please search Flying Doctor online to give a regular gift of just $10. You can help equip the Flying Doctor's teams to respond to any emergency anywhere. Search Flying Doctor online. Become a part of the Royal Flying Doctor service and help save lives in the bush. On the air 24-7, your news talk giant, TNT. All right, we're back for the second segment of the third hour on Connecting the Dots. I'm here with Alex Dimitrios, and we've been discussing the geopolitics of nuclear energy, the battles around the multipolar alliance, which has brought um, a a standard of competency when it comes to energy policy and long-term thinking that is a breath of fresh air in my view and Alex's view. Um, and has also forced the collective insane West, which has been committed to depopulation, degrowth, deconstruction of Western civilization for a long time to, uh, begin to change a little bit. Um, and you were bringing up Alex, how, um, even coming out of the last COP 28, um, meeting, which these COP annual COP summits are typically, um, weird imperial like green imperial rituals that are trying to always corral and 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 intimidate nations into giving up um the sinful you know the according to the gaia theory the 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 sinful carbon production systems that have allowed us to have industrial civilization to begin with and also nuclear power has not been seen as friendly this one has been different now admittedly carbon hydrocarbon based forms of energy were still not welcomed after the last COP summit, and, and uh, I guess it was in uh, Dubai, but you point out that there was a, a, a threefold increase in commitments in the collective Western nations to uh, embark upon nuclear power. That's right. Can you say a little bit more about like what, what in your words resulted in this? Like, w- w- where is this coming from? Uh, yeah, it's, the West is seeing that the uh, paradigm that we were trying to force on the third world is not going to work anymore. 
Uh, you know, we've had about 25, what's it been now, 30 years since uh, the fall of the USSR. Uh, and for a little while in the, in the, at the, after the end of history, uh, the West could get away with pushing uh, a stagnation agenda on the rest of the world or even a depopulation agenda. Uh, and what's broken through, multipolarity, uh, contrary to some people's opinion, it is a pro-growth opinion because it causes this competition to start happening uh, where there's different games in town and developing countries, you know, so, some of them have to be cagier than others about playing both sides. Others uh, can, um, you know, go fully one way or the other. But uh, countries that want sovereignty are going with the BRICS nations and the BRICS nations are providing nuclear energy technology. Uh, they're helping them build infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports, uh, and, and they're bringing hydrocarbons, which means natural gas plants, coal, oil, uh, you name it. Uh, so what's mm -hmm. happening now is that um, there's uh, a shift that's happening. And I don't think a lot of people are admitting it yet, but I think we're moving from a system of control to a system of at least controlled competition. Uh, and that's why, mm -hmm. even though if you're a nuclear person, if you're into nuclear energy, if you're, you know, nerd out on this stuff, uh, the only game in town is Russia and China. That's where all the amazing advances are happening. China now has fourth generation nuclear reactors that they're actually building. Uh, in the United States, we do, we're starting to have uh, more advanced nuclear designs, but they're not actually uh, getting produced. They're not market ready. Um, they're still facing a lot of the old uh, decades of uh, nuclear propaganda that are still baked in. But these other you know, mm -hmm. developing countries, uh, they don't have that same propaganda. And they're just seeing yeah. how they're looking, for example, just right now with uh, the, the Houthis and the Suez Canal, uh, if you rely on natural gas, which is still better than renewables, you still need a constant supply of natural gas reliably being shipped to you in these LNG terminals. And 10% of the natural gas in the world gets shipped through the Suez Canal. So if you're waiting for that shipment in Europe right now, um, they're going to be experiencing a ton of inflation this winter, uh, simply because we first we blew up the uh, Nord Stream pipeline. So then we're like, okay, well, we'll ship you guys LNG through the Suez Canal. And now that's getting blocked by the Houthis. So now they have to ship it an additional 7,000 miles around uh, South Africa to, just to get to Europe, just to uh, power you know, their all-electric grid that they're trying to go to. Uh, so this is what this is what the developing world is seeing. It's like, okay, well, which uh, which orientation can we go with? Is it the one that's built on chaos and intermittency that we can't uh, build a civilization with, or are we going to go mm -hmm. with the one that's reliable, uh, disciplined, logical, and uh, wants to see us succeed alongside them? And that's why they're picking yeah. Russia and China. Yeah, that, that's that's really important. I think that that transitions a little bit to people who have been watching this instead of simply listening on radio um, have noticed that the subtitle of this show has been how the Club of Rome shaped China's one China policy. So I think that this is a, a good bridge because a lot of people would say, oh, but China is the the role model for global uh, population control and degrowth. Don't you know, they're the obviously their one child policy is the model that uh will be used by the Davos crowd to control and regulate global populations according to social credit standards, all these things. Um, you, in, in your recent paper uh, from, well, recent, some months back, One Child Policy, Kissinger, Rockefeller Foundation, and the Club of Rome invaded China with Malthusian 
ideology. He did this in October. I loved it. I republished it on my website. Um, you proved that there's more to this story. Um, how do you respond to these people who are who are really of this anti-China perspective that China is the the bearer of all Malthusian population control? And result, how do you how does that resolve with the paradox of their enthusiasm? for nuclear power productivity other things that we've that you've outlined in your uh, in your works sure well there's two kinds of people that are really into these narratives like you said there's the anti-china people who say oh that's a chinese you know, one one child policy malthusianism that's chinese that's you know that's what they're doing and also there's either people that are really into multipolarity or really into communism and they say oh well China, China did it, so it must be good. They did it because they're a sovereign nation that's 100% control of everything within their country, and they're doing it because it's Marxist and it's good. And both of these narratives are, at the end of the day, th those are the real anti-China narratives. Uh, what really is happening is, for a long time, China is trying to develop their country. They're trying to, they need to be allowed to develop their country in order to get to where they want to go. Uh, so... Uh, over the uh, the you know the 1900s, the 20th century, uh, you know uh, Mao uh, took control of the country in 1949. Uh, he had been you know tutored under um, Sun Yat-sen, who uh, him and you know he he had a, a Confucian outlook, and also he was influenced by the American system. Uh, he was anti-Malthusian. Uh, uh, and Mao kind of upheld um, those beliefs, and he was uh, fervently anti-Malthusian. He believed in a, a big population for China uh, as a great asset for the nation. Um, he wavered a little bit in the, the late 1950s, and uh, there was a ferocious response in China um, because that's just not how they're. This that's just not how the civilization has developed. Um, they have a very um, utilitarian outlook on nature, uh, where they look at the tiger and they don't they don't see it as a, a blessed uh, sacred being. They see it as oh, there's 50 different kinds of medicine that we can get out of the tiger, and we can use the bones for this, this, and this. Um, so they're very utilitarian about stuff like that. I don't I don't claim to be a China uh, whisperer, but that's that's what I've been told. Uh, and then um, in the 1960s. Uh, they're starting in the early 70s as environmentalism developed in the West. There started to be this confluence of um, evil, shadowy, sinister uh, groups that are start to circle around China, and they see that China is looking to to play ball. They're they're looking to develop. They want to uh, overcome uh, the failures of of um, them attempting to develop their country. You know, they hit they hit some barriers um, due to a lack of uh, investment and capital, you know, fighting a war on many fronts. Um, so the Rockefellers, the Club of Rome, and Henry Kissinger himself uh, all had various um, entreaties and interactions with China. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are details to it. There's the NSSM uh, report that Kissinger wrote. I don't know the exact number of it, uh, where basically he he warned about, you know, China's uh, growing population. Um the Rockefellers invested a lot of money in family planning in Russia, which is code for, you know, let's uh, prevent them from breeding too much. Uh, and then the couple of in Rome, Russia and China or just in, in China. I'm sorry, in China. Did I say Russia? OK. okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. In China. 
And then the Club of Rome, they, they issued their uh, limits to growth report, and it had a huge impact around the world. And what happened was, was that uh, China, um, they were looking to not be a backwards country anymore. So they look, they were looking around, okay, well, what are Western countries doing and talking about? And uh, what, what they did, you know, Deng sent uh, a missile scientist to, um, uh, po you know, population conferences around the world. And the scientist came back and he was the architect of the one child policy uh, eventually. And he said, oh, look, well, all these other countries, England's talking about cutting their population in half. Uh, Denmark's talking about cutting their population by 33%. This is what Western countries are doing. This is what we need to do. Uh, and it was with that kind of thinking, they were very, um, they, they bought the uh, cybernetic PSYOP uh, quite a bit from the Club of Rome crowd. Uh, and they crafted their own um, pop overpopulation policy. And it they actually uh, were able to pull it off. Um, you know, I think it was only strictly enforced in about 30% of the country in the rural areas, which is most of the country, they were not able to literally enforce it. Uh, but the population of China did, uh, the, the growth rate did level off significantly over several decades. And it wasn't because they came to it as a... Uh, logical outcome that was best for the country they came to it because it was what the west forced them to do they were told in mm. no uncertain terms on many fronts by the west you're not going to get this outside funding you're not going to get the capital flowing into your country you're not going to be allowed to develop um, as much as you were unless you uh, cut down the population growth rate and uh, there's a yeah, lot of lessons I, 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 yeah as, it's as so important because i mean now, you, you, you Absolutely. And you map it out so nicely. The the Knowing that at the same time as the trilateral commission funded by David Rockefeller was coming online in America and, and run by Kissinger's big new Brzezinski at the same time as this deep state takeover of Malthusian, Malthusianism was, was being brought into the United States, the same agencies were at the same time focusing on infusing this, this poison into the governing strata and the population as a whole in China. And you bring up how it was David Rockefeller who went to China. And then two weeks later, you had the family planning leadership group set up in China with a whole program of facilitating Club of Rome thinking, including, as you pointed out, with this rocket scientist, I think you said his name was Majian. Uh, he was bringing Club of Rome computer modeling into China, which was then part of the entire opening up program that really did so much damage in the long run. Um, yeah. Yeah, very, very important to get across that it's the same agency that hates China that also hates America at the same time, which is working both sides that is, is latched on. And it, it's neither American nor Chinese per se. It's something else that people have to think about that's manipulating us. Yeah, this didn't make it in the article, but in the 1980s, uh, the one child policy became a major source of um, a, a point of attack. Uh, by American Republicans against China, saying that, oh, the, look at this this communist policy. You know, this was part of the abortion battle uh, in the United States. And they, the American Republicans were able to uh, make abortion seem like it's a, a Chinese, you know, communist plot uh, for depopulation, when in fact it was our, it was our very government, our, our very oligarchs were the ones that were pushing it on China. And then it got turned around. Um, and you can see mm -hmm. that again today, um, you know, the Club of Rome is still in China. Um, and just like just like Henry Kissinger is um, a respected figure in China, the Club of Rome 
is still an NGO operating in China. And now they're very influential with the uh, Ecological Civilization Project in China, which is a softer form of, um, I wouldn't say degrowth in China, but it's a uh, it's kind of putting the brakes on developing too fast. And it's a nod that, mm. that China still has to make. If they want all this ESG money flowing into their country through uh, from the West, you know, through Wall Street and the city of London, they do have to make some nods towards sustainability. Um, and they're not uh, ecological civilization is not just something that they came up with in a vacuum. It's something that's being uh, through NGOs like the Club of Rome, which are still there, and uh, the Population Council still uh, funnels some money to China. Uh, they do have to make some nods to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you pointed out the the guy who rent, who runs it uh, is not even Chinese. He's uh, yeah. Jorgen well, uh, Ronders, right? The former Jordan head of Rand- the World Wa- World Wildlife Fund International. That guy formerly ran yeah. the World Wildlife Fund Interna- International, and he's the one who's in charge of the Chinese uh, Association for the Club of Rome. Like, what what is this? And then also Maury Strong lived out his last days, also pushing this garbage inside of China. So there's this very very influential thing. China obviously hasn't fully liberated itself. Would you say from this this operation? No. No, and yeah. and uh, a lot some some of the uh, the pipeline between the United States and and China, uh, you know, China loves uh, to you know cross pollinate and have build relationships and uh, build kind of uh, friendships uh, in different uh, vectors across China and America, um, but a lot of them are uh, focused, you know, de- laser focused on ecological civilization. And so that's mm-hmm. why Jorgen Randers can go on CGTN. He's one of the original uh, authors of the Limits to Growth Report, which if if read honestly, uh, you know, 50 years later, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's going to affect China more than anyone. Uh, that's the country that has the most potential for growth uh, right now with the biggest population and um, so many natural resources there that they can turn into um, technology. Uh, but he's, you know, he's welcome in China because they they look at him and they say, okay, well, th- this is someone from the West that's very respected, and uh, we should we should consider what he has to say. And you know, maybe there maybe there are some aspects of um, what he has to say that they uh, they study and they they see what they can do to um, kind of uh, you know address the concerns of, of Western environmentalists because uh, at the end of the day. Uh, environmentalism will be used, could be used as uh, a vector to attack, to justify an invasion or a conflict with China. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if, if taken very literally, they could, you know, people could say, oh, well, they're using too many, they're exceeding the ecological limits and uh, they're doing more than any other country and they're still not doing enough. And that's why we need to invade them or have some kind of conflict. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's part yeah, of their yeah. part of their security, I think. Right. Yeah. The, the, the merger of the the uh, what was once the fringe left ecology movement with the right wing neocon uh, warmongering movement into some weird monstro- monstrous convergence is a strange thing. But, yeah, you could see where this logic would necessarily flow to with China having got pulled itself out of the Paris agreements uh, from 2015 or the 2016 Paris Accords. China basically escaped earlier uh, this year or last year. Um, they're increasing the carbon 
um, footprint, so-called, by still utilizing coal, oil, natural gas in increasing rates and encouraging other nations, sin amongst sins, uh, to do it themselves as well. So there's all, and also, I think the the um, this is probably freaking out uh, Randers and others is that they've also gotten rid of their one-child policy, their two-child policy, and they're actually now trying to recuperate from the the self-damage inflicted upon themselves by going along with this thing back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. So with that, let's go for a quick commercial break, and we're going to pick that back up, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what China has done to heal itself or to try a healing process and extract this deep state uh, entity from within itself over the past few decades. So... Uh, we're going to come back in a, in a couple of minutes with Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio.live. Sometimes life can be overwhelming and suicide may seem like the only way to relieve the pain. Beyond Now is an evidence-based app created by Beyond Blue to help you cope when suicidal thoughts start to appear. You can use it to create an easy-to-follow plan that is personal to you and includes steps like know your warning signs so you can act early, Make your environment safe by removing harmful items, activities you can do or people you can be with to distract yourself from suicidal thoughts, reminders of things that make you feel strong. Some of these steps might be tough to fill out, and that's okay. It can be helpful to make or share your safety plan with a trusted friend, family member or mental health professional. You might feel like you're alone, but help is available. If you're worried you can't stay safe, Use the red telephone icon to call your emergency contacts. Download the free Beyond Now app today to create your personal safety plan. While serving in Afghanistan, I was hit by sniper fire. The fighting was so intense, the medevac chopper was barely able to land. In the hospital, I was given a 5% chance to live. It's a good thing math wasn't my best subject. Today, I visit classrooms and share my story. I talk to kids about dealing with life's struggles. I tell them, with a little help and a lot of work, that you can overcome any challenge. DAV helps veterans like Adam get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. I know that some struggles are big and some are small, but they're all struggles, and you have to learn to get through them. With support from DAV, more veterans like me can live their best life. And as a new father, I have one more reason to keep on keeping on. My victory is being there for the next generation. Adam Alexander, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. TNT Radio. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're in for the third segment of the third hour with Alex Dimitrios of Space Commune. Um... We were talking a lot about the Club of Rome, Rockefeller Foundation, Kissinger infiltration of Malthusian ideology into China at the heart of the one China policy that did a lot of damage to China um, and also created the basis or at least increased what may have already been there in a limited degree, but really amplified this Chinese deep state structure of foreign entities that we could see for those looking for it. You could We could see all sorts of evidence of battles to extract this thing um from within china but at what point would you say that china really woke up to the fallacies and how much damage they were doing to themselves um regarding this rockefeller program and changed their or changed their orientation to something that was more befitting um a civilization with a future 
do you think that there was a moment or was it a slower process of gradual sort of uh, maybe we should stop doing this uh <laughs> it's not working I mean, so yeah it's well it seem it does seem like uh around 2010 around there uh I mean it was a it was a process over time and like I said only only 30 percent of the country uh really had the one child policy enforced on them it was more of a, a cultural uh shift that happened over many years um mm -hmm. but I think around 2010 around the time the ascendancy of uh, Xi Jinping uh that you could see clear signs of them I mean officially uh condemning the uh the program or um you know not making it the law of the land anymore and then um moving towards really uh bursting through the limits to growth with the massive expansion of their nuclear program and uh building a nuclear program with Chinese characteristics um you know building what they call indigenous reactors uh where they they absorb um western technology like uh you can see if you look at uh the the hit the design and you know the design histories of some of their current reactors uh some of them are, are kind of descendants of uh French designs and United States designs but then they really absorb them make them their own um make it work for for their specific needs so I would say around you know around 2010 um that's where they really officially made a break uh, with that and that's where that's where ecological civilization uh has stepped into the void uh to be that olive branch to the west uh where they say that we're we're actually uh we're actually doing the things that you guys want us to do and please allow us to develop with with minimal interference and we'll uh, we'll make some of these nods to you um but but without restricting our population yeah well i definitely took the wind out of the sails of a lot of people who would qualify themselves as western uh like greenies i guess who you could see would easily hate china because they're this giant industrial productive hub which seems to run contrary to their ethos but at the same time they can't really say anything bad about it because China's actually got all of the solar panel and windmills and they're doing yep. green energy more more efficiently than than we are in many ways. Uh, but they're not putting their entire economy, they're not making their whole economy reliant on windmills and, and turbines. They're, that's being used for its appropriate place in, in uh, civilian centers, I suppose, but they have also hydrocarbon burning, a lot of nuclear power. Um, yeah. on that note, well, that's an extremely good point, Matt. I'm glad you brought that up because, uh, if you look at the difference between how we use renewable energy in the West and how China does it, they own 95% of the, uh, supply chain for solar panels. So when they build solar panels and they deploy them in China, it is completely, it means something completely different for them than it does if. Uh, for example, here, if we shut down a nuclear power plant and replace it with a whole, you know, miles of solar panels, um, it's completely different for us. We're destroying our energy grid and we're going into debt to buy the solar panels. What they're doing, they're looking at their country and they're saying, okay, what do we have? We don't have a lot of oil. We don't have a lot of gas. They have to get their gas from Russia, but we have a lot of coal and we have a lot of lithium and we have relationships with countries where we can get nuclear fuel. Uh, so when they're building solar panels, they're one of the few countries in the world where they can say they're increasing their energy security by building solar panels 
because they are actually willing to mine the lithium to do it, and they're actually willing to build the solar panels, and they don't go into debt to do it. Uh, the rest of the mm -hmm. world, uh, e even though we can say, oh, you know, we're put we're pushing all the solar panels in the developing world. Yeah, we're we're going into debt to buy them from China, and then we're forcing third world countries to do it in lieu of building uh, re reliable sources of energy. Uh, so it's completely different for us when they do it. Uh, and what's funny too, is that they, the way they build solar panels and wind turbines, uh, it's, uh, it's, I, I know it must kill environmentalists inside a little bit. You know, there's, there's famous videos of entire mountains that are just covered in solar panels uh, where, you know, they're clearly like, they're clearly disrespecting the, you know, the ecological environment and it's just completely they completely remade the landscape it looks so bad um and environmentalists have to say yeah they're they're building more solar panels than anyone else we should be like china but um okay. you know it's in a different it's a completely different way for them mm -hmm. on in regards to nuclear power a lot of people still um are saying that China is only a copycat nation, you know, Peter Zahan and others. You, you hear this repeated a lot. They they don't do anything. They're not a creative people. They're just a mechanical Borg-like machine civilization that can't be creative or innovate. And they're just copying Western tech. Um, in your analysis, looking at their, and I know you've paid a lot of attention to their, their trans transportation technology, nuclear power technologies. Would you agree with that? Or would you say that uh, there's a flaw in that analysis? No, I mean, there. Are, if you you actually have to build something. So, I mean, if you want to use Western, if you want to use Western uh, propaganda, I mean, Steve Jobs had a famous quote where he says, you know, real artists ship. And uh, with China, they're actually building the nuclear power plants. So I think that's uh, an amazing achievement on in and of itself. Uh, sure, like in the United States, we have all these these companies like Bill Gates's Terra Power. Uh, where they have all these designs for small modular reactors that can power the, you know, data centers and great reset um, technologies of the future. But in China, they're actually building the small modular reactors. They're actually building uh, highly advanced reactors that can even recycle uh, nuclear waste um, and turn it into more energy. Um, I, I just they have they have so much innovation happening, and uh, from a legal perspective. Uh, they have iterated and um, creatively advanced uh, the Westing, American Westinghouse designs and the French uh, reactor designs to a point where, uh, from a copyright perspective, they cannot even, they're untouchable because they have advanced the technology so much uh, where it's unrecognizable at this point. So I think, I think it's bunk to say that they're, uh, you know, a, a Borg-like entity that's just uh, able to uh, build. You know, they're just willing to build things through brute force and determination. There's a there's a lot of craft and creativity there. Also with coal, I'll sweet. say this too. With coal, they've done amazing things uh, to make coal uh, cleaner. Um, they actually are uh, leading the world in clean coal technology because so much of their net their energy security is uh, is through coal. Uh, they know they're going to have to keep burning it for a long time, and it does it does create smoke. It does, uh, you know, it does have negative effects for for people that live nearby. Uh, and they've actually made amazing advances um, in squeezing out more productivity from burning less coal um, at their coal plants. So, I mean, they're, they're doing they're doing things that other countries have have never been able to do. Yeah, 
I was actually, I was just reading as well on uh, life science, um, how China, Chinese scientists have found a practical way of determining the electromagnetic spin of uh, uranium molecules in ocean water, which are highly diffused, but there's still a lot of like diffused uranium molecules floating around. Each molecule in the periodic table has their own uh, magnetic charge or magnetic signature. And you could calibrate devices that would just receive that particular uh, magnetic signature and just compile. And in a sense, what they've done is they've been they've been mining uranium now from ocean water, mm. which is just mind blowingly interesting um, that there's these these types of of innovations happening. But you said something as well that uh, I, I think I'd like to know a little bit more about. And I think a lot of people listening are probably of the view that nuclear waste is the worst thing in the world and all we can do is bury it. You alluded to the fact that there is another approach that also we see China doing something about this other approach of reprocessing, reprocessing that doesn't involve just burying it for a million years. Can you say a little bit more about how that works at all? Yeah. Or like, it's a, it's a technology. I'm not, you know, this is an area that I'm not, um, extremely well versed on, but the technology has existed for at least 40 years now. And we've actually attempted to build it in the West where there's uh, mm -hmm. there are ways to reprocess spent nuclear fuel um, and byproducts from making nuclear energy where you can make even more energy and you can create this, uh, this loop where you just keep uh, making more and more energy uh, without even having to move earth again to mine the uranium. In fact, uh, there was a plant in the UK, it's called the Sellafield uh, nuclear plant. And uh, it was very controversial. It was built, it was most of the way built in the late 80s or early 90s. Um, it was uh, it was known as a first generation nuclear reprocessing plant um, where they were taking um, uh, uranium and um, you know nuclear products uh, from the missile program in the UK and turning it into nuclear power, you know, which is mm -hmm. amazing, wonderful thing to do, I think. It, that would be a great benefit to humanity if we uh, melted down some more nuclear weapons and turned it into fuel. And mm -hmm. this uh, this was such a a blow to the anti-nuclear propaganda of the time that Sellafield became. Um, I wasn't around. I was a, I was a little you know a little child at the time. I don't remember this, but uh, apparently it was this huge thing. It was like a Live Aid style concert that U two spearheaded. Uh, where they it was the stop Sellafield MTV concert, uh, where they were just going all you know going to the wall to uh, to stop this plant from being built that could turn nuclear weapons into nuclear fuel, because basically wow. that destroys the anti nuclear argument that all nuclear is bad. Nuclear just means explosions and bombs and death and destruction and you know, um, so they were trying to stop it. And uh, one of our Substack articles you can find at uh, spacecommy.substack.com uh, is about how AOC, people like AOC and U2 suddenly flipped this year on nuclear, where AOC, U2, Greta Thunberg, they're all now saying that nuclear is okay or even critical uh, because they're looking at the reality of the multipolar world and they're seeing Oh geez, you know we can't even we can't even build weapons anymore. We can't even keep up uh, with our supposed enemies in Russia and China uh, without nuclear. We at least need nuclear to build weapons. And you know these people, uh, you know we we need to get them to say, oh, we need nuclear to raise the uh, productive 
capacity of our our nations uh, to give people a higher standard of living. That's really what we need. Um, but you know, they are suddenly just flipping on nuclear energy because they just see how the rest of the world is uh, moving past us. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it's it's useful to sort of see this as a reflection of because I mean, obviously these 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 people you outlined are not decision makers unto themselves, but they're they are the expression of handlers who represent factions within the the oligarchy, which has made certain decision decisions and recognized certain uh, necessities that they have to bend to against their own will because we know that. The oligarchy's mandate is population reduction, keep people stupid, keep us as detached as possible from scientific and technological progress, which should be something reserved only for the inner elite and otherwise, you know, have a system of forever wars and keep the slaves fighting with themselves, keep them hungry in a land of scarcity. Um, so the fact that we now have a shift away from that indicates that the oligarchy doesn't want to have nuclear, but they know that they have to. And you see the shadow of it in the form of a shift of narratives in uh, the Wall Street Journal, as you eloquently, eloquently pointed out. That's like a voice of the establishment, which is coming out with articles saying green investors are being crushed and uh, the ESG craze is fading. And there's yep. obviously a new messaging, kind of like we're seeing with Ukraine, too, right, where the yep. obviously that didn't work out as planned. And so there's a new messaging being put out as they're trying to re like change course for this giant ship with its trajectory that's really hard to to change it because that's decades of yeah. propaganda of mechanism under it un, uh, you know pushing it in a certain direction and they're like no we we have to change course because we yeah. can't compete we can't do battle with this thing we despise that's pro-population growth in in the multipolar alliance so it's interesting to see this thing pan out the way it is eh yeah they're relying on us to be like goldfish and you know, they want us to have the memory of yeah. goldfish swimming in the wake of the giant ship that you're talking about. And we're like, oh, well, a nuclear, uh, U2 says that nuclear is good now. I have no memory of what happened 30 years ago, how they they stopped a, an amazing program from happening in the UK. You know, just nuclear is yeah. good now. So. It's, it's a sad irony. Like a big chunk of the anti-nuclear movement was originally recruited based on the idea of stopping nuclear war, which is a legitimate thing to want to stop nuclear bombs. That's fine. But despite the fact that that's what won the hearts of a lot of young people in the 60s and the 70s to the anti-nuclear movement nuclear war only increased in danger over the course of the next 40 years and it's only been the civilian peaceful use of nuclear power that has suffered and has been shut down but <laughs> the actual danger of a geopolitical um yeah. conflagration of thermonuclear war has only increased despite all of that so it's a it is a sad yeah. irony you can see that with Ed Markey, who's uh, the U.S. senator, who is the main architect of the Green New Deal. Uh, in the 80s, he blocked uh, uranium shipments from going to India. India is a place where they burn dung to create uh, electricity. Uh, he blocked them from getting nuclear fuel because of this, you know, this fake, uh, this fake program of yeah. stopping nuclear war. But uh, he just stopped them from developing. A good electrical infrastructure for their people, and it still hurts them today. Aye, aye, it's painful. Eh? So, it look, I, I, thank you so much for this for this briefing. Where do people reach you? How do they follow your work? How do they follow Space Commune? What do they do? To follow Space Commune on X, Space Commune on X, uh, spacecommune.com, and then we have our Substack, 
spacecommune.substack.com. Uh, those are the places to see, to see the articles. We have a lot of good stuff coming out this year. Wonderful. And your documentaries are fantastic as well. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much, Alex. And until next time, till next week, this is Matt Arrett on Connecting the Dots. Take care. <laughs>